One problem facing people at many levels of business is how to make time for a work life and a personal life. Do you find that one seems to keep getting in the way of the other? This is the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. Even if you're not involved in the business world, you'll have a lot to gain by tuning in to today's show. Now, here is your host, Rick Morris. And welcome to another edition of the Work-Life Balance. Very excited to have everybody along. You know, as I, I think it's still just really, really crazy times. Uh, I, I know a lot of the states in the United States are starting to kind of think about reopening and, and reintegration and you know, it's it's just been a, a crazy moment, but uh, I had a moment of reflection this morning. I had a chance to to join a mastermind with with several of the John Maxwell team members, and really, you know, I think the the entire part of us being uh, quarantined for that matter is that we really uh, it's allowed me to focus more on connection versus distraction. Right, this is kind of the key thing that came out. I think uh, because I was traveling so much and because I was going all over the world and I and literally would lose two days a week to travel, uh, there was just tons of distraction that I wouldn't allow that connection piece to, to always go. And now that I'm, I'm kind of forced to, to stay in one spot, um, it's really been something to focus more on connection with people. And I, so I challenge you to reach out and connect, call three or four people a day and just, you know, maybe past clients or people that you haven't gotten, uh, gotten in touch with recently and, and just have an opportunity to, to reach out to them. Um, you know, I've got some some very special people in my life that uh, that provides that connection that really just amplifies my energy. And so I, I urge you to find the same. We also want to announce um, if you haven't had a chance to come join us at the pmtribe.com, please do. Uh, so for my project managers that are listening out there, my agilists that are listening out there, um, we wanted to create a community that, that did more than just deliver content. We wanted to deliver direct mentorship. So it's led by six of the brightest minds that we know in project management and agile. And each one of us have lanes in which we have uh, calls every week. The calls are recorded, but you have the ability to call into uh, to the mentor and, and ask anything you want to ask and, and deal with any issue that you want to deal with. Uh, and we've got some phenomenal uh, mentors, John Stenbeck, Colin Ellis, Peter uh, Taylor, Elizabeth Heron, Elena Hill, uh, and myself. And so uh, it's just a great community of, of people that are really driven to watch you grow and, and, and master your influence to be able to really do the job that we were intended to do. So that's at the pmtribe.com. Come join us over there. So we're going to get to our guest today. Our guest is, is I'm, I'm really excited about this. He's an independent management consultant and he's focused on unraveling tra uh, troubled large-scale projects and helping organizations transformation into high-performing and adaptable companies. In short, his mission is to help teams and organizations become better. Better in the sense of increased teamwork, increased flow, increased learning, and increased passion about their mission. Most companies today are run based on flawed and outdated assumptions about how people work their best. These assumptions around the structure, work methods, and management got us far during the Industrial Revolution, but those same approaches no longer work. The good news is we know what works now, and the challenge is that it's not easy or intuitive to get there. And so we're going to talk to this gentleman who, who brings us this, this great knowledge. His name's David Stackleather. David, how are you doing, sir? I'm good, Rick. How are you doing? Doing fantastic. And, you know, when I asked for a topic for the show, you know, the inevitable collapse of Agile. <laughs> and so, boy, already I can feel the Agilist just, you know, just breathing heavy, like, uh, don't you, don't mess with my method, don't you touch my stand-up, right? <laughs> don't mess with my sprint. Um, but let's talk about that, right? Agile is is such a big buzzword, and it's it's 
you know, something I look, looking at you on the screen here, I'm not going to guess age or judge age, but we've been through the ITIL, we've been through the Six Sigma craze, we've been through all the latest fads and things. And, right. and so when, when I first heard of Agile, I thought it was a fad. I was like, man, it's not even going to be around in two years, but right. it, it's hanging on. So yeah. talk to me, but why did you come up with that as a title? Why do you see it uh, as an inevitable collapse of Agile? Well, I, I, my, my early career, my first, uh, you know, professional job was in uh, when TQM was coming into the. Uh, I'm a TQM. Uh, I'm TQM certified, baby. T- yeah, and process reengineering and Mike Hammer and and there was an executive at the company I worked for who was big into process reengineering, and I was kind of picked from the bowels of the organization as maybe I had an interest and a, a skill there, and so. Um, those things, I was really passionate about that. Did a lot of work within the company I worked for with our clients, a kind of an internal consulting company, learned a lot, traveled the world. Um, and I still believe in all that stuff. I still believe in TQM and I still believe in process reengineering in the, in the right context. Um, but it became clearer and clearer to me that there's a more fundamental issue that even if you have the recipe, even if you have the quote unquote solution, there's a bigger issue in trying to accomplish that in large organizations. And my most recent experience in a large-scale agile transformation um, where a very old-school organization in the insurance space, which is famous for not wanting to change for some good reasons and some bad, um, and looking at even an organization that wanted to go through the transformation and needed to go through a transformation, um, how much kind of nonsense there was within that structure and, and nonsense internally generated, but a lot of nonsense externally generated from consulting firms, um, a lot of people who really had no idea really what they were talking about, but they had a certification over a weekend and suddenly they felt they could uh, suggest how an organization that is a multi-billion dollar, organ- billion dollar organization is going to operate. And appreciating the complexities of that, you know, because it's not a machine um, that we're dealing with. And I've dealt in manufacturing environments, and those are also extremely complicated. But when you get humans involved in the situation, um, it's really complicated, and the context is key. And so the more that I look at specifically Agile, which I'm a big believer in the foundational principles of Agile, I think this is the right direction. But the industry around it and what's being sold is is doesn't kind of hew to those standards, I don't believe. And just like, frankly, if we're speaking, you know, uh, honestly, the TQM days, the process reengineering days, the Six Sigma days, whatever fad you can mention, um, the outcomes, I think, were generally disappointing to the uh, various businesses that implemented them, not that there weren't successes. And I, I think we're seeing that now in the agile space as well. Well, and so let's back that up and deconstruct it a little bit. First, whether it's TQM, uh, ITIL, Agile, uh, Six Sigma, it's all plan, do, check, act. I mean, Pembach is doing that. Prince right. Do is doing that. I mean, it's all, it's all we're going to plan, we're going to do it, then we've got to measure it, and then we're going to act upon those measurements and deviations, right? That's right. plan, do, check, act. So that's why I always consider it a fad. But I, I think my biggest determining factor of whether or not I really believe in what's going on mm-hmm. is whether is the first step that's suggested. And if the first step is suggested is we got to train everybody in the organization in new, in new words and in new uh, lingo, right. then you're selling training. You're not selling a product. Because honestly, if you do it well, you don't really have to put anybody through training. It's, right. it's just You just change the underlying structure and say this is the way it's going to be done here. 
Is, right. is that fair to say? No, I think it, it, the way that I, I, I look at these, I, I question, especially with the large-scale frameworks, and I use SAFE as an example, not because I have any particular issue with SAFE, but that's the most popular one. Um, and uh, I ask myself, what's being sold there? What's the business model? And the business model is a certification business model, and it's a consulting business model, implementation business model. But really from the, the, the large-scale frameworks being uh, sold, it's really the revenue stream is certification, which is why you pick just about any of the frameworks or any of the organizations providing certification and when I first got involved in the Agile space, there were a couple. You know, you had your product owner and your Scrum Master certification. You know, there was a handful. Um, now there's a dozen or more for most of these. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it, which is, is kind of crazy in a lot of ways. And so, um, just like any other business, they're coming out with new models all the time because they want to create um, uh, new features and new models they can sell. And that's really, it's, it's not fundamentally about improving an organization. It's about selling the training and all the kind of add-on processes. And I think you're right, an executive or a leader will see that as, you know, I call it installing the Agile. You know, I want to buy the Agile and install the Agile as if they're buying a printer or something. Right. Um, And because of the way it's structured and sold, it kind of looks like that. And it seems very scientific and it seems very official and it's very expensive and very time-consuming. Um, and by the time you get through all this certification and uh, relabeling and all this process, a couple of things happen. Either it fizzles out and people just still use the same terms, but they're not really acting in that way. Or an organization will try to fool itself because once you've spent millions of dollars implementing something, you can't really admit that it didn't, it didn't work. And so now you're, you're, you're kind of forced to set to to say that it did work or move on and and uh, forget about it because you don't want to admit that you spent a huge amount of money in doing something that didn't work. Now Dean Leffingwell is he's a friend of the show and and he he's endorsed books that we've done. We we wrote a book called Agile Almanac, which was scaling mm-hmm. all the different types of agile methodologies to the to the bigger scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, he endorsed that book. Wonderful person, but. The, the certifications are coming out too fast. I mean, I was certified, I think, in 4.0, and it's already up to 5. Right. And that was just a few years, right? And, and yeah. your, your certification is no longer valid because I decided I wanted to change the model. And the reason why I changed the model is because I'm getting feedback that it doesn't work, right? So it's, right. it's, it's this constant thing. But to be fair, one of the things that you said was, was TQM and, and all these things, right? Six Sigma, TQM, all the they seem not to, to work. And, and what I think happens is I think they do work. I think, I think in their purest form when, when, you know, the Toyota way, right. That was the big thing. Everybody went and read that book and tried to implement it like Toyota did, but right. it did work for Toyota. It was, it right. was amazing what they did, but I, I love the way that you said the install methodology. Yeah. So j- just go get me that. No, no, that was a whole culture built and it went from right. the top down and everybody was know- right. knowing what was happening. Um, and so I want to get some of your feedback. We're about to go to break here. And I, I want to start talking about what you call the agile industrial complex. But to leave the listeners w- with something here as well is um, one of the biggest things that I see in failures of agile is that we don't change the methodology of the executives. And and I see this. I have a lot of coaches on the line as well. A lot of John Maxwell team coaches. And when, mm-hmm. when you approach an executive, they go, oh, God, yeah, my team needs coaching. They're like, no, no, no we're starting with you. Oh, no, I'm fine. I'm good. I, you know, mm-hmm. My team needs it. I'm, you, you don't have to talk, talk to me. And so I'm watching 
you know, a team-based agile gets started, but still being requested waterfall reports. Still, you know, yeah. when is it going to be done? How much is it going to cost? Which means the organization hasn't bought in. Right. And so now you've spent all this money on training. You've got this agile team running. And now when you're trying to then quantify it back up to the executives, they don't, they don't, that coach has never done it in a large scale. Like that insurance company, there's that, that right. person that got sort of certification hasn't led anything on a large scale, whether let's transform a business. Right. So lots to talk about, lots to unpack. We'll get into the agile industrial complex. You're listening to David Stackleather and Rick Morris on the work-life balance. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. Are you aware that 80% of project management executives do not know how their projects align with their company's business strategy? Are you aware that businesses identified capturing time and costs against projects as their biggest project management challenge? Are you aware that 44% of project managers use no software, even though PricewaterhouseCoopers found that the use of commercially available project management software increases performance and satisfaction? Now, imagine that you could have the ease of entry like a spreadsheet and a software tool set up and running within two to four weeks. Imagine within two weeks being able to see clearly where all of your resource conflicts are. Well, you don't have to imagine because PDWare has already created it. PDWare can give you real-time access to KPIs, easily updated views of what your teams are working on, and immediate feedback to some of project management's toughest questions, like, when can we start this project? What happens if we delay this project? Can we do this in time? How does this new project impact our current portfolio? Find us at pdware.com and imagine not manually compiling endless reports again. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now back to the Work-Life Balance. And we're back to the Work-Life Balance on this Friday afternoon, visiting with David Stackleather. David is talking about the inevitable collapse of Agile. So that obviously piqued my interest and I'm excited to, to have you aboard the, the show. One of the things that you brought up in, in some of the pre-interviews is you talked about the agile industrial complex. Can you, can you describe what that is and what you're talking about there? So this is uh, the most uh, visible aspect of this are the uh, certification organizations, um, you know, scrum.org and uh, uh, the uh, scrum Alliance and then some of the framework vendors, safe and less, and uh, those kind of things. And th- that's even in the past couple of years, that's kind of exploded. Um, even from a framework perspective, we have Nexus and others that have popped up. And you know, I think as we talked before the break, a lot of the stuff is based on the same set of principles. It's just kind of a remixing um, of it. Doesn't really bring anything new. 
Um, and so this creates this process where there's an industry that's selling something to people. And there are multiple customers in the industry, which is kind of the complexity of it. The certification is one um, component of it. And those customers are employees and folks who want to get into a job or a career and the certification, it, just like in you know the project management space, you had PMP certification. This is like that, but just worse in that there's so many more. Um, and uh, the employees and the workers feel they have to become certified. So you have a ready-made audience. Uh, hiring managers are part of this as a customer of this complex because hiring managers are looking to hire a fairly complicated skill set in a lot of these roles. A, you know, Scrum master is an amazingly complicated skill set to hire for. And so as a hiring manager, it's much easier for me to simply say, do you have a CSM? And then I'll hire a CSM. And then, you know, just like in the old days where nobody got fired for buying IBM, you could say, well, nobody gets fired because you hired a CSM. And I, they were certified. But nobody knows really what that means, being certified. Um, and you have executives who are, for various reasons, some of them real, the performance of their organization isn't where it should be, and they're looking to change, or they just want to be in on the latest fad to tell their friends that, hey, I'm an agile organization now. And so they want something to buy and install. And a lot of these large frameworks um, uh, that come along with the certifications is something they can buy and feel that they can install. Um, and what's, what's fascinating, you said something before the break about, you know, it does work in certain contexts, this stuff. And you mentioned Toyota, and I totally agree. Um, now, the interesting thing is there's only one Toyota in the universe. Right. And so, the, you know, the context is key there. And in Toyota, the, you know, executives were really bought in and are continue to be really bought into the concepts and the uh, philosophy behind it and the culture. And that organization has built up over time. But you can't simply say to, a, you know, a financial services firm, be like Toyota. Um, that just doesn't really work. And so a lot of this, this uh, industrial complex is really about selling pieces of this to different customers, but it's not about fundamental transformation because you can't, you can't just buy that in a box and install it. Um, yeah, and they, now, but, they, but they're sold it. That, they're sold exactly it. What they, they're sold a bill of goods. You right. do this, you yeah. will get this. They're sold this as a box. And the more, you know, kind of the more complicated it looks, the more pieces, the more titles, all that stuff. Um, the more it kind of makes sense to the existing narrative, which is really a false narrative, but they, you know, they think there's just some tweak. And it, from an executive standpoint, they're really saying, I want somebody else to change. I'm not going to change. So right. give me something that I can install that will have these other people change. I think there's also a, a, something that's happened recently, or a couple of things that's happened recently, uh, and by recently, maybe in the last decade. Uh, one is that you have a, a lot of executives and organizations that have found themselves in a position where they have to understand technology because their business, it, everybody relies on technology. You know, when I was in the financial services space, you would have uh, executives talk about, I don't really care what happens in the technology department. And, you know, I tried to tell them if, if the technology stops working, this organization dies in 24 hours. Um, and so there's no distinction between the business and the technology nowadays, but you have a lot of executives who this is new for them, and a lot of them don't really want to be involved in to the degree that they need to be. And so this, this kind of uh, scratches an itch to say I can, instead of understanding really what's going on there and, and be a part of that solution in the context of my organization and change myself and change how my, uh, my leadership team operates, I'll just buy this box of gizmos and have you guys install it. 
and it'll just it'll change the organization. But it, it fundamentally is an impossible ask. The other thing that's happened, you know, in the past maybe three or four years, I would guess, is the very large consulting houses have come into this. They see this, the buzz generate, and large organizations, you know, on the kind of late adopters. And so that's an, an opportunity for them to just kind of, uh, here's all the people, we're going to sell you thousands of hours of very expensive consulting uh, folks to go in and transform your organization. And all they're doing is implementing the the box of gizmos that you buy from the framework, uh, implementing it without context within the organization, and they'll spend several years doing that. Um, but fundamentally, your organization won't change because the culture didn't change, the way the leadership operated didn't change. Um, and unfortunately, eventually all the employees will figure that out much quicker than the leadership will. Um, and they'll become kind of uh, um, upset that this is another fake change, which is probably one in a long series of fake changes within most organizations. Not all. I mean, I want to be careful that there are there are definitely organizations out there that are uh, trying to change and leaders that are trying to change. But if you look at a percentage of organizations, I think that's a pretty small percentage. And so, uh, so it's some it's important for us then to focus on on the why of the change. You know, one of the big things and misconceptions of agile is if I install it, we'll be faster. And it's mm-hmm. just. It, 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 it's 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 no different than saying I'm going to hire a, a, a personal trainer so that I can run faster. Right. But that the day that you hire the trainer, you're running faster, right? That's yeah. months of hard work and months of transformation and in, in changing. And so I think the other thing is is if if you're going to agile because you're having delivery problems and a lack of trust in the team and a lack of leadership, agile is only going to exacerbate that. It's only going to make it worse mm-hmm. because it, it requires more trust and more cohesive team units and stuff to be really effective. Right. But I, I recently had a client um, that, that was sold the safe bill of goods, essentially they went safe, but almost every single one of their projects is uh, commercial off the shelf installations. Hmm. So now you're at the mercy of the vendor and they're right. trying to be agile and they're trying to do PIs and it wasn't working for them. And I always said, so just don't do that ceremony. Right. Oh, well, you know, it's prescribed. It's what we, we, but we have to recognize that these are just like the PMBOK. If you look at PMI and the PMBOK, that, mm-hmm. that was a methodology, but that doesn't mean I do every single one of those processes for every single project. A methodology, right. this isn't a doctor prescribing a treatment. If you don't do the treatment, you're going to die. Right. This is this is somebody going. You know, you may want to eat a, a couple less potatoes there, Rick. Just kind of lay <laughs> off the potatoes like a little bit there, right? That, that's yeah. more of what it is. So, so why why is that difficult though for executives to just comprehend? Why we we see it because we've been through it all. Yeah. Why yeah. why are these executives just buying in? Well, I think part of it is that, uh, especially in large organizations with a big hierarchy. Um, most executives don't interact with the people who are at the interface to their customers. Um, so I, I read somewhere, I wish I knew who, who had written it, but they said there's a, a developer, a programmer has more in common with, this, with the CEO than any kind of mid-manager does, right? Because they both just want to get something done at the end of the day. But most CEOs don't talk with the developers who are writing the software for their customers, and don't sit down and listen to what their problems are. And um, therefore, they have all this middle layer, this information that's being kind of squeezed of value before it gets into a PowerPoint and it gets into the boardroom. And the middle layers that are squeezing that information out are not doing it maliciously. They've been trained through the culture to do that, to what to expect, how to communicate, 
the, the one that I, I always uh, kind of laugh at is I'm always admonished for providing too much detail to executives. You know, well, they don't want to go into that detail. I say, well, I understand mm-hmm. they don't want to have a five hour long, you know, speech about something. But these are smart people. I mean, these are, these are not dummies. Why are we dumbing down everything? Why don't we have real conversations about real problems at the interface of the customers, which is the only relevant interface in an organization? Um, and so I think that because the executives and leaders have separated themselves, they don't go and sit down with developers and customer service people and the guy at the dock unloading the boxes. All these folks know exactly where the problems are. And they'll tell you. Now, they may not tell you in the, you know, most flowery language. They may not be polite about it, um, but they'll tell you what the issue is. And you should be thankful if that's the case. But too many uh, executives don't do that. And I've seen in my career a couple who are really good at that um, and would know what was going on and could, could interface with the organization at all levels in a way that made sense. But most are just kind of trapped in their daily meeting structure and PowerPoint decks which there's no inf- there's no valid information coming from that process. Yeah, Carly Fiorina actually attributes a lot of her success to first female you know, CEO of a, of a tech giant, HP, mm-hmm. uh, to the fact that she would she talked to everybody. She'd sit right. down with anybody and, and hear them out and got her best ideas from the lower level. There's the thing that that I've du- I've dubbed it the fuzzy middle layer. You're talking about the middle layers. I call it mm-hmm. the fuzzy because that's where stuff just gets fuzzy. Right. Um, but it's interesting. I was part of a project at uh, at CA where we were developing an application on top of Clarity PPM. So mm-hmm. you know, your total project portfolio management's got all of your statuses, and we built a, an app for an iPad where you could do your strategy, but mm-hmm. then you could tie your strategy directly to the project, so you could see in a dashboard how your it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. But it bombed because it bypassed the middle layer yeah. because it was getting the project managers were inputting data directly into the system. And that was feeding right up to the strategic plan. Right. And there was no context being given by the fuzzy middle layer. And so it caused a lot of concern. Right. And uh, so the project managers loved it. The executives loved it. The fuzzy middle layer hated right. it. Right? It's right. really interesting to watch. Yeah. But why do we why do we think executives stay so far remove the I'm, I've met with CIOs that literally just they're like they like us they, they like us these consultants who will give them that level of data because we're the only people giving them real actionable data in the system like right. how do you how, how can they not see that culture getting formed well they you know um, a part of it it happens over time um, and so it's it's the old boiling frog problem where it's not a quick thing. These cultures are generated over time, and it makes sense. It's logical that as an, especially as an organization grows, you're like, well, when I have you know, if there are ten people in a room and we're a little ten person company, we don't have a lot of hierarchy. We're just in a room. We're talking. Everything's flowing. If we have a thousand people in the organization, as the leader of the organization, I think, well, just mathematically, I can't deal with a thousand people. So it makes sense for me to create a hierarchy rather than creating kind of a network process, which is a, a structure that you might want to look at rather than a hierarchy. But the default is, well, I, I have a problem, so I need to hire a role. Um, I need to have somebody to manage these people. Um, and before long, you have all these structures. And there are a couple of things that happen, I think, to most executives. One is they get into a cadence. It's the you know, the old maker versus manager process where, you know, managers can split their time in half hour increments. But if you actually build anything for a living, that's not possible. You need to have long periods of time of uninterrupted 
you know, programmers don't develop software in half hour increments, right? Um, and so they get into this cadence where it kind of makes sense. You're having these meetings, you're, you think you're getting the information. It's very quick to fool yourself um, that you have some line on what's really happening because that data is all being translated uh, uh, based on what the middle layer thinks you want to hear. And that middle layer is watching the executive's reaction really, really closely. And so I think what a lot of executives don't realize is when they have a reaction that's maybe a poor reaction or they push back against something or they complain about something, that that almost has a 10x effect on the reaction of the middle layer and it just makes the situation worse. Um, and I've seen that time and time again with like executive reaction in a meeting where somebody's presenting some data which is valid and, and it's not good data, it's not good information. Um, we'd rather not it to be that way. And the executive reacts, and I, I don't like this. Um, and the reaction is kind of a 10x effect to the middle managers. And therefore, the next meeting is even more watered down. Um, yeah, for sure. And, you know, one of the things that has amazed me, especially in lar very large, like financial services organizations, is the disconnect in, um, in opinion between executives on what they think the worker level in the organization is, how good they are, versus how good they really are. And so they have an opinion that, well, our programmers aren't very good. That's why our software kind of goes down or whatever. Yeah, right. And if you sit down and talk to the developers, you know, you're like, these are really smart people. These guys know what's going on. Um, and you, you're lucky to have this kind of staff, but the executives have never really talked to them and interacted with them and understand how many of their decisions, which they don't even understand the impact of their decisions, um, kind of causes problems within the systems of the organization. They kind of they kind of lay the groundwork for their own torture in the future, but they just don't realize it because fundamentally they're not talking to people because they they think that as an executive, my job is to sit in meetings and listen to powerpoints and issue directives and that sort of thing rather than going kind of get lazy, right? You, you get lazy and you get used to that process. You know, we're all human. Um, we, we get used to that. This is kind of nice coming into the office, having my coffee, <laughs> having somebody come and, you know, give me a PowerPoint deck, me making some kind of pontificating on it. Um, the other thing that's well, dangerous. David, let's, let's, yeah. let's pause right there because what I'd like to do is, is give some tips and tricks around kind of preventing this happen. But we do yeah. need to get to a break really quickly and we'll okay, do that perfect. right on the other side of these commercials. Listen to Rick Morris on the Work-Life Balance. At the Work-Life Balance, we like to ask simple questions to our executives and portfolio managers. Are you picking your projects based on what the organization can spend, or is it based on what your resources can realistically achieve? This question, if not answered properly, can cause great strain on your staff, limiting the return on investment. When creating project selection criteria, does your organization attempt to understand the amount of resources needed to complete the work? Is this done in spreadsheets or at a high level? What if we told you there was a simple and easy solution that was built with resource planning in mind? We call it Resource First from PDWare. Resource First was built with resource planning as its foundation. We have years of experience that proves before a company fine-tunes its project and portfolio management processes. Without a process for resource planning, the best processes and algorithms can fall flat. Resources should be first when deciding the strategy of taking an organization forward. Find out more at pdware.com. Put your people first with Resource First from PDWare. Join us at pdware.com. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? 
In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now back to the Work-Life Balance. And we're back to the Work-Life Balance on this Friday afternoon. We're visiting with David Stackleather and talking about Agile and what we may see is the inevitable collapse of Agile. And right before a break, we were talking about kind of executives being removed. And, and you made a really good point, David, in talking, saying that there's opinions that are, that are different. The opinion of, of the developers, the executives, are, is really based on that fuzzy middle layer that we we're talking about. Um, I always like to ask executives when, when I go in, I say, well, who's, who do you think makes the strategic decisions of this company? And, you know, of course, well, I do. And, you know, this is what I get paid for. And I go, so do you have a prioritized list of projects? And are you resourced against those? And they go, no. I go, well, then you're not making a strategic. You you may make the strategic direction. You're not making the strategic decisions because the person that is, is that DBA in the corner that just got asked the four things to do. And because there's no clear direction on what I should do first, they're making the strategic decisions of what they're doing. And I've got eight. 84 different strategic decisions being made a day. Right. So that's, that's, it's an interesting concept, but how do we, what are some tips and tricks to kind of help that? Or how do you deal with those opinions? So, so one, and you know, agile really helps in this way, which if, if the executives and leaders would accept this is the idea that if you operate off a prioritized backlog of things that you're working and whatever the granularity of the backlog is, you know, um, but certainly at a, at a higher level about what the outcomes are you need for your business. And f- the idea of forcing that prioritization, so you don't have 10 number ones, which is usually in large enterprise, everything is important, we need to have 10 number ones. And you know, the way that I describe it to them is, look, when you, when you come into work in the morning, you have to get dressed and you have to get your, your set appearance to show up at work. All that stuff's important. Your pants are important. Your shirt's important. Everything's important. But you have to have a priority to get it done. You can't do it all at the same time. And so that's fundamentally the same way that we have to operate in these, these projects and these efforts. One is to, to, the one decision is what is the most important thing at this moment in time. And if you can, as a leader, make that decision, then you need to figure out what information, who do I need to talk to? Um, because I think a lot of organizations kind of outsource that work, just like you're describing, to the, to the layers, the programmers, and the DBAs, and the mid-level managers to make those decisions. And there's a thousand decisions happening. Um, and probably with most organizations, 60% of the work is not really relevant to the success of the organization. It's kind of busy work. It'll be thrown away, or it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. 
but leaders are not making those decisions because they're not having a hard discussion about prioritization, which is hard. I mean, I admit it. Um, you have to make decisions about what you won't do and what you will do. And that list should be fairly small and it can change over time. But too yeah, many, but they, they love to pass that. that they, they, right. But that's the, you know, as you just described that somebody's making a decision um, and they're making that decision for you. And you've just outsourced that decision to somebody you don't know. And you don't know why they're making that decision. And most likely the decisions are not going to be consistent for delivery of some value that the organization needs, which is why you have so many organizations spending what seems like more and more money, especially on technology efforts, but they, see, but they get more, less and less value out of the other end. And there's lots of reasons for that. But one, I think, is because of this lack of really, if you're an executive, the one thing you need to do is prioritize what's important to the organization. What, what really needs to happen and what are the goals of the organization and have a feedback loop to understand if, you've, uh, if you need to change your decision. And very, very few leaders have that process. But the Agile kind of uh, guides the way. If you, if you just take the kind of baseline Agile of a prioritized backlog, that concept and approach um, can help quite a bit. But but too many uh, don't want to have those difficult discussions because it is difficult. But let's, yeah, let's talk about that for a second, prioritize backlog. And I'll, I'll give you an example, working with a, an executive recently. It, first of all, the, the term agile coach, I, I, I hate that it's so wide because yeah. I, I am an agile coach, but I don't, I don't install teams and I don't do, what I do is I work with executives to teach them how to think in an agile format. So for mm -hmm. instance, um, you know, the, build me a data warehouse. Okay, well, that's fine. But what are we going to do with it? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, right. I, I don't know. I just need all my data in one place. And then I'll tell you, no, then, then that's not what we're going to build. And so I was doing this with, a, with an organization. And I was like, so what are we trying to get at? Well, we feel like we need to do local market plans. Okay, great. So how's a local market plan work? Well, we get our 50 accounts and we get information. So great. Let's, let's take six people. We'll do 300 accounts. We'll clean them up. We'll do this all manually to see if we're going to get a benefit before mm -hmm. we go buy a big data warehouse. Right. And I just kept asking questions. So I was like, so why can't we just take the 50 accounts and finally got the executive to go, well, how do I know those are the best 50 accounts? And I was like, there's your first agile question. Right. How do we know and what are we going to use? So what are we going to use to determine? And he comes back, I don't know. That's why I need a data warehouse to give me all the data. And I was like, even if you have all the data, you're not going to know. So right. let's start here. Yeah. And that's what an agile coach should really do is, is really force you to the value conversation mm -hmm. and asking really good questions to be answered versus, well, I want to build a data warehouse and we're agile. So I should get it in six months instead of a year. Right. Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting because as you're describing that, you know, if, if you uh, take, take it out of the agile coach or an external party like yourself having that conversation and put an employee in that chair, they wouldn't get past the third question. Right. With, you know, they, they would just kind of be like, okay, I'm done talking about this. Just do what I told you to do. I have another meeting to go to. And so, you know, I think too many, ex I, I, I'll give you an example, a personal example. I've had somebody who's worked for me at three companies over my career. Um, and this individual will tell me when he thinks I'm going loopy in a nanosecond. Very straightforward. And sometimes it can be a frustrating conversation. You know, it's like sure. he keeps pushing, pushing, pushing. But I've always valued that. You have to have, have to have people in the organization or people that you trust to be able to push back on the process or to ask the 20 questions until you get to something that makes sense. 
And too often, uh, executives or even mid-level managers don't want to allow that. It's, it, it, they have a very short fuse for that. Um, and I think because it's part of it is because of the internal PR machine in your head um, uh, that a lot of managers have when they're not involved in the day-to-day. And occasionally, they'll uh, come up on a situation and they'll say, they'll make a comment, oh, you should do it this way, or have you thought about that? And they're right. And the employee says, oh, we didn't think about that. Sorry. And what people don't realize is the manager or the executive in their head, the PR machine in their head is saying, oh, you're a genius. Look, you just figured something out. You're a genius. You're a genius. And it plays in their head continuously. And then they, they end up believing their own internal PR. When it's not, it's just because you don't, you're not involved and you just showed up and you saw it from a different angle and you made a statement and it seemed like you're a genius, but it's just the context of where you're coming from. It's not that you have any greater knowledge than your employees. And so I think they train, you know, and we all do this, get trained over time if we're not actively pushing back against this process um, where we're shutting down the conversation that is so critical. But, but oddly enough, we'll let an external party do it. Um, if you bring in an external consultant, you'll let them get away with all kinds of stuff. Not always. Um, there's always. A oh limit, yeah, I've been I've been escorted out of building. A yeah, I mean, there's, <laughs> you have to kind of judge the context, but you can get away with a lot more as an external party and ask uh, more uncomfortable questions than just about any employee in the organization. And that shouldn't be that way, right? I mean, from because there's a lot of good knowledge um, in organizations um, that they're missing. So. We've got a couple of minutes left, about two to three minutes left in this segment. What should executives really be focused on? If, if, if Agile is not going to work, what, what should work? What should they be focused on? So I think they shouldn't be focused on uh, you know, implementing a, a framework or having everybody get certified. They need to, now, not that these things are not useful. These, these components of what we call Agile are very useful. But executives should understand what's the context of their organization. What's the culture of their organization? What is the... Um, the goal, the optimizing goal of the structure of the organization. What do they need? What problem do they need to solve in the next several years, five years? Um, and look at uh, maybe tactics or structures that they can implement and test and have a feedback process, but not to buy something that they're going to install. Um, a, a large framework, starting to change titles, get people certified. Really, until you as a leader say, what are we trying to accomplish? And how should we change our work? And there's a lot in Agile that'll inform on that and that's very valuable. Um, but you shouldn't be, your first step should not be to call up a consulting firm and say, I want to buy the Agile and to install the Agile. Because um, that's, um, that's inevitably going to fail. Um, and uh, uh, most organizations, that's what they're doing. But the hard work is to understand your organization, go talk to the developers, figure out really what you really want to accomplish as an organization. Maybe you don't have a problem as an organization, frankly. Um, you might be uh, working just fine. And Agile is not the right thing to implement. Um, and so that's the, the real process is to have those discussions and questions at all levels, not just in the boardroom. Yeah, I think, I think one of my biggest suggestions I give when we start talking about Agile is if we're going to deploy Agile, you need to start deploying Agile yourself as an executive, even in the way that you're bringing in people. So, What's the value that you're going to negotiate in versus, you know, and, and that's my frustration with some of the big firms. And, and look, they, some of the big firms do a lot of great work. They, they mm-hmm. do, to be fair. But then, you know, we have our run-ins as consultants. I, I you know, I, I was an expert of, of this software for 20 years. I was there when it was built and I'm working with a lady that, that actually wrote the financial calculation portion. We're trying to solve something for a client and it's not working the way we want. And 
this guy comes in, sits down with the software for about two minutes, and he gets a meeting with the CIO. And now I'm having to sit with the CIO because this guy thinks he solved a problem. It's taken mm-hmm. a, and I, it, <laughs> again, this is not, I, I wouldn't suggest this, but again, I was an external consultant. I was frustrated. Plus I'm Italian. And I said, look, I, <laughs> I read all about your business on Wikipedia last night and I know how to solve all your problems. Mm-hmm. And the guy goes, what are you talking about? I said, that's what this joker just did here. I mean, you've right. got the people who wrote the software in the building. Let us finish this out. Right. He, right. he has no idea what he's talking about. Yeah. But unfortunately, that's what we deal with in, in the consulting game. Right. Yeah, ex- absolutely. Yeah. So we're going to go ahead and take our final break right here. We're going to come back with David Stackler. We're going to find out how to get in touch with him, as well as what is some of the best advice he's ever received. Stay tuned right here. You're listening to Rick Morris and the Work-Life Balance. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you aware that 80% of project management executives do not know how their projects align with their company's business strategy? Are you aware that businesses identified capturing time and costs against projects as their biggest project management challenge? Are you aware that 44% of project managers use no software, even though PricewaterhouseCoopers found that the use of commercially available project management software increases performance and satisfaction? Now, imagine that you could have the ease of entry like a spreadsheet and a software tool set up and running within two to four weeks. Imagine within two weeks being able to see clearly where all of your resource conflicts are. Well, you don't have to imagine because PDWare has already created it. PDWare can give you real-time access to KPIs, easily updated views of what your teams are working on, and immediate feedback to some of project management's toughest questions, like, when can we start this project? What happens if we delay this project? Can we do this in time? How does this new project impact our current portfolio? Find us at pdware.com and imagine not manually compiling endless reports again. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now back to the Work-Life Balance. And we're back to the Work-Life Balance, our final segment this Friday afternoon. Still visiting with David Stackleather. David, what company? Are you your own consultant? Do you have your own firm? Or? Uh, yeah, I have my own, you know, one-man operation called Scaled Frameworks, kind of as a joke about the Agile Frameworks. <laughs> <laughs> um, well done. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I was surprised so, uh, it was available, but yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. How, do, how do people uh, uh, get in touch with you? How do they find you? Um, so the easiest way to get in touch with me is either at david at scaledframeworks.com if you want to shoot me an email or I'm on LinkedIn um, uh, at uh, uh, LinkedIn slash stackleather, linkedin.com slash stackleather. 
I'm only one of two David Stack leathers, so you'll quickly find out which one it is. The other one's my dad. He works for the federal government. That's not me. <laughs> uh, what so you what would you say is your, uh, your ideal client? Um, my ideal client is uh, someone, uh, a leader in an organization who really wants to make change, um, who sees that the situation is changing maybe in their industry. They're not delivering uh, as they, they used to. They're not satisfying their customers. They don't really know what the, what the gears are, how, how the thing needs to change, but are open to anything and open to dealing directly with people who do the work, um, open to changing, open, open to being in very uncomfortable situations. Um, and those are the best. Like if we can just have a real conversation and maybe it gets a little heated, but we're okay at the end of the day, we're moving forward and trying to do the best thing for the organization and the, and the folks that rely on that organization, both employees and customers. Um, that's the best situation. I really get uh, energized by those kind of situations. I'm not really big on the politics and hierarchy and let's talk about the org charts and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. That's that's not really something that I'm as interested in. So what's some of the best advice you've ever received? So probably the, you know, it was similar to the kind of the internal PR machine I, I that I mentioned before the break. I had an executive that I worked for for quite some time and um, he told me uh, during a dinner or something, always remember you're not a genius, um, which is shocking to have somebody about seven rungs above you on the uh, org chart. Um, and we talked quite a bit about that. And what he had said was that uh, there's so much information. There's, the, the world is so complicated in a lot of ways. You can't possibly know everything. You have to rely on other people. You have to be open to new information. And no matter how smart you are or how smart you think you are, you have to know and believe that you're not a genius um, and you're not always going to have the answer. And for two reasons. One is because you're not always going to have the answer. Uh, the second is even if you have the answer, other people have an ability to kind of mess that up for you. Um, and so you have to make sure that everybody's on board and nobody likes to work or deal with somebody who thinks they're a genius. It's annoying. Um, and so I, I think I'm very smart. I have an ego like anyone else, but I try to actively tamp that down. I think it's important, especially the higher you are up in, the, in a hierarchy, um, the more uh, kind of good luck you've had in your life about uh, moving into a position, having the right education, having the right parents, whatever the situation is, um, is having a little humility and understanding that uh, the world is very complex um, and you don't have all the answers, but uh, if you get enough people together and have a good conversation, you can probably find a good solution. Um, and that's the best advice, and I've tried to in increasingly improve on that over the years. This probably was 20 years ago when I heard this message. Um, and that's, uh, you know, uh, uh, led me down a good path, I think, over time, um, where I can, I can at least be proud of what I've done, and I'm not ashamed of anything that I've done in my, my career. Do you have any final thoughts or things that you'd like to share with the audience? Um, well, I would just say that especially if you're involved in, uh, in an agile transformation, if you've got your CSM, if you're in an organization that you think is kind of struggling is to kind of throw away the idea about the certifications and go back to the, the actual underlying data. Um, and what I mean by the underlying data, the underlying information is the, the old stuff like Deming. Um, the number of times that I'm in a room of with executives and I ask them if anybody know who Edwards Deming is, and I get maybe one hand out of 40 go up. 
you know, it makes me really sad. Um, and this is what I'm, I mean about this. We know what to do in these organizations. We know how people work. We know how leaders and, and people on the factory floor or the call center floor, ideas that really operate, but we need to go back to this information. So kind of throw away the new website stuff and go back to the Demings and McGregor. It's not hard to find all these people. Um, and, and you'll be surprised when you read the kind of the old knowledge um, that we've known about this for quite some time. We have a lot of ideas, but uh, I think folks need to really go back and read that stuff and understand it, the intent behind it, um, rather than kind of taking a you know, pre-written, pre-installed framework or set of tactics um, and try to shove them in the context of your organization because it's just, it's just going to be frustrating um, all the way around. Yeah. And, and, Again, there's going to be something else that comes behind Agile. It's going to be that. In fact, I already heard of one. Um, a friend of mine just went to Rome to get certified in this thing. And, but mm. essentially, it, it, when he described it to me, I was like, so tell me how that's different from ITO. Right. Well, yeah. th- this one's different because you know, there's chargebacks. They're really trying to be as a cost center. And you know, I was like, right, that's exactly what ITO was doing. And everybody, everybody froze at the time that you were trying to do the configure the CMDB, right? That, that was right. always the... The one piece of thing, there always seems to be one piece of thing. In, in, in this case, it's, it's uh, Agile is the right level of development of, of when you throw something into PI. Mm-hmm. That's always the one thing that people seem to miss. They're throwing strategy over versus functionality or requests or business questions. Right. In, in this one, right, it was a CMDB. So now they've tried to figure out how to do it without a CMDB, and therefore, <laughs> it's right. new. It's right? new, right. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's frustrating. Yeah, well, that goes to it's it's a business model, and they're they may not realize this. They're constructing a product to sell, which means you have to change something, and you, you've got to have something to sell. And now you're just re for the most part you're rehashing uh, old stuff in a new format with new fonts and you know uh, fancy website, uh, but fundamentally you're not really selling anything new. And fundamentally, people can't buy something and install it and change their organizations in that that deep of a way. Just is not really possible. That's right. Um, so, I've had to I've had to learn how to develop analogies. That uh, I I do a lot of stuff on resource management, understanding the utilization of our people, and it doesn't have to be hard. It takes five mm-hmm. minutes a week per person, you know, per yeah. manager really to do. But I always love, you know, we don't have time to do resource management. I'm like, well, that's like saying you're too fat to diet. It just that there, right. there's nothing there that makes sense. It's right. just yeah. it is what it is. Right. Well, David, I've appreciated your time, partner. I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your expertise with us. And we wish you luck in the future. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. And so for everybody else hanging on, we're going to have Wes Bush on the show next week. Wes is a best-selling author of Product-Led Growth. He's a renowned product-led growth pioneer. And it says in his bio, he's ridiculously tall. So we're going to have to figure out what that means. Uh, but uh, looking forward to have Wes on the show. We've got some great guests lined up. We're actually, I think, booked out into July now uh, for the show. So we've got a lot of great information coming up. We'd love for you guys to, to give us feedback. You can do so at, at Rick A. Morris uh, on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn and Facebook at Rick A. Morris. And uh, you can always send an email to rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com or at rick at rickamorris.com. And until next Friday, we hope that you live your own work-life balance and stay tuned right here to Voice America Business for our next fantastic show. Thank you for joining us this week. The Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now that the weekend is here, it's time to rethink your priorities and enjoy it. We'll see you on our next show.